Welcome to James Explores the New Mutants, the podcast that, well, explores, explains, and examines the comic book series, The New Mutants, its rebranding, relaunches, and spinoffs. In an attempt to share my passion for this series, its characters, writers, and artists. In this episode, I'll ask the question, what does a clandestine government agency, a group of teenagers, and Sebastian Shaw of the Hellfire Club have in common? You might have said the Salem Center Mall, and you'd be partly correct. But I was really looking for Sentinels. Yeah, that's right, those giant mutant hunting robots. In fact, issue number two of the New Mutants is entitled Sentinels. Please stay tuned, and when when we return, we'll cannonball into Sentinels. Welcome back. Before we dive into issue number two, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the listeners. I've received so much positive, supportive feedback, and it means the world to me. Like, really, thank you, thank you, thank you all so much. Thank you. It means so much. I've enjoyed, really, this podcast so much. It's been a blast, and I'd love to continue to to really cater to what you're looking to hear. And in that feedback, what I heard was quite often people really, really enjoyed and appreciated the behind-the-scenes look at how this comic series was created and developed. And so I will do my best to continue to, you know, research on the internet and delve into source material like Marvel's comics, The uh, Untold Story by Sean Howe, um, because I find it just as fascinating, I think, as most listeners seem to. So that's my goal, is to continue to bring you that behind-the-scenes look. Um, that being said, right now, in, in the at the point where we're at in the comic, it doesn't seem to be, uh, it's pretty quiet. There's not a lot of uh, interviews about this point. There's not a lot of material that I'm pulling up that's talking about this. So it seems like things were going pretty smooth at Marvel at this point. Um, Not a lot of consternation. So um, that being said, there's not a lot of production stuff to talk about. But... uh, Something I touched on last uh, episode was uh, how the Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants share plot elements. So, I explained that last week uh, as being due to Chris Claremont writing both titles, and that's certainly true. But as I thought about it this last week, I wasn't satisfied with that answer alone. Like, it, it is the correct answer, I think. But why? You know, why is that the explanation? And so, you know, I'm going to dive into that before we get into issue number two. You know, what were the reasons? You know, what are some of the explanations? And I came up with two that I think are fairly reasonable. One being that it was purposely designed as like a mini crossover to help sell this new spinoff series, right? Uh, But the second explanation lies in Chris Claremont's approach to writing these X titles at this time. And it's this very, like, 
long game approach, right? Where he drops plot element seeds or plot seeds or uh, plot strands or strings throughout his stories that then he can come back to later and tie into something down the road. Um, but let's let's examine this idea of the crossover first, right? So I think we're all familiar at this point, you know, with what a crossover is in the Marvel Universe. Um, so let's look at these books, at these few issues of New Moons and um, the Uncanny X-Men titles that are overlapping here. And if you look at them, you're not going to see references to one another, right? At the end of the issues, they don't say, look at, you know, see next week's or, you know, this month, see Uncanny X-Men, whatever number, uh, for the continuation of the story, or vice versa towards New Mutants, right, from Uncanny X-Men. Um, so there's none of that. There's no, like, directing you which issue to read next. So that's a little odd. If you're going to cross over, usually there's some sort of uh, plot, right? They tell you where to go next. Uh, so you get the story in the correct order. Um, so that's not there. So what else? Uh, usually there's possibly some characters that cross over. So we do have that. We do have Moira McTaggart and Charles Xavier. So when I think uh, <laughs> characters that are going to sell books, um, Xavier's not usually one of them. Now, I could be really wrong. Uh, maybe in 1983, there were ravenous Charles Xavier fans that lined up waiting for the very next title of Uncanny X-Men to come out because they just had to find out what was going to happen with Charles Xavier next. You know, or maybe they were the, you know, I don't know. That It seems fairly unlikely to me. Uh, he's, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I just don't buy that. <laughs> um, now, there are plenty X-Men on the team that I would be really excited to see appearing in other books at this time. Um, I would have been really psyched to see Wolverine. I like Wolverine a lot. I would have loved seeing Storm. Um, You know, Nightcrawler, Colossus. uh, The list goes on with anyone on that team. The problem is they're all in space and everybody thinks they're dead. So they're not going to show up in the new Mutants title for a little bit. So uh, it's really unlikely that they thought, well, if we just put Xavier in this new mutant title, it's going to sell. Uh, so that's probably not why. Um, Xavier's just not that Spider-Man, Wolverine, Deadpool type of character. And that's okay. He's a good character in his role in New Mutants. So crossover's probably not the deal. They're probably not trying to increase sales by weaving plot elements together. So when we look at the writing style... And I talked about this long game approach, right? So this is the second point, uh, my second thought. Um, you know, I explained this as like, the best example is, is the Dark Phoenix saga, right? Chris Claremont, he has Phoenix show up like, you know, Gene becomes the Phoenix, like... <laughs> I don't know, 50 issues before she dies in the Phoenix Saga. Um, 
And they're going to retcon that, and we're not even going to worry about that. We're just talking about the Phoenix Saga and that. So we're not even going to worry about the retcon and what happened to Gene. So if we just look at that, we're looking at like 50-some issues before we get to the point where she's then being corrupted and slowly turned to evil and then becomes a dark phoenix and then as she is killed. Um, that's a lot of comics, right? And that's a long story arc. And I think that's amazing. I love that about uh, about Chris Claremont. So I'm not complaining about that at all. I think it's brilliant. I l- it's one of my complaints about comics today is writers don't stay on books long enough. I personally like these long, this giant mythos Chris Claremont created for the X-Men. He, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. I love it. Personally, I love it. Um, maybe not everybody does. I do. So, that being said, I really liked Phoenix Saga. I think it's great. It's a good example of his long game approach. Um, if you haven't read it, you definitely should. Trade paperbacks can be found at used bookstores. You can probably find it online pretty cheap. It's worth picking it up just to read it if you haven't read it. So that being said, that's type of way that's the way he writes, right? And so he's in the middle. When the New Mutants spin off, he's in the middle of the Brood Saga, which is another epic story arc. Really, really awesome, well done story arc. Uh, it's another great story arc that is worth reading. But he's in the middle of this. And like I said, the X-Men are believed to be dead. Uh, now, at the time that this spinoff occurs, it was an editorial mandate from Jim Shooter, remember? I talked about this in uh, the very first episode. And he told them, either you're writing this or I'm getting someone else to do it. And Claremont said, no, you're not. I'm going to do it because I don't want anyone else messing up my stories. Uh, so he, he took over this. He created this new book with Bob McLeod. And... Now, it makes sense to start it here because Xavier's got a reason to start a, you know, a school with young mutants and not have them to be a super team because he just lost a second team. Because remember, the second team went to rescue the first team that he thought was dead. Uh, with, with, yeah. So anyways, it's a long story. But uh, we're not going to get into right now. But uh, yeah, so he's got a time and a place that this makes sense to start the spinoff, right? Um, in the middle of this Brood Saga, which has to then share elements because Xavier's directly affected by what's going on in the Brood Saga, which you, by the end of this episode, you can probably start to guess what's going on with Charles Xavier if you haven't read the books yet. Uh, so... Of course there's going to be shared plot elements. You can't get away without it, you know, without that happening at this point. Now, there's going to be one other big plot element that's shared, uh, and we first see it brought up in Uncanny X-Men 161, and that's Gabriel Huller. Now, for those of you, we talked about her last week. She is the father of a child, or the mother of a child that, uh, God that uh, Xavier had with her. And in 161, we find out the backstory of Gabriel Huller. Now, she was catatomic after World War II. She had survived concentration camp, and Xavier uh, has used his telepathic abilities to help her um, 
and there's some issues of consent and he knows that he shouldn't have been in a relationship with her but he was and we know that he was because he has a he has a son with her that he doesn't know about but she obviously does because she had this kid so that happens in 161 and 165 Moira Uncanny X-Men 165 Moira McTaggart gets a letter summoning her to London where she's supposed to meet the Israeli ambassador Gabriel Huller. Uh, New New Mutants issue number one, which we talked about last week. Uh, Moira meets Gabriel Huller in London and finds out about Xavier's son that she's supposed to help. So, my argument is that Chris Claremont had this plot idea that he was going to run in Uncanny X-Men, right? Xavier's son and Gabriel Huller. And this New Mutants story arc, this new, sorry, New Mutants spinoff needed stories, needed plots. So why not slide this plot over there? Xavier's in both books, right? It makes sense for him to be in both books. He's headmaster of the school. He He's the... You know, founder of the X-Men. <clears throat> so he, he can be in either book. So if Claremont wanted the story to be an uncanny X-Men, it would have worked there. Because the only characters you really need are Moira, Gabriel Huller, and her son and Xavier. Right? The X-Men could have been the team that helped Xavier with that problem. Um, or the New Mutants can. It doesn't matter which. Uh... The X-Men got a lot of stuff going on. You know, they're lost in space. They got all these personal, you know, issues going on. They got crazy teammates they're going to be joining up with. They got a lot of story arcs. They got a lot of plot threads going on. The New Mutants, they don't really got anything. They got what Chris Claremont's going to write for them. But if he could just see the story, you know, that's going to play out in their comic down the road, let these characters find their footing, let the story find its footing, let the book find its footing, begin to develop the characters, you get off and running, then you can throw in this amazing story arc, which you will, yeah, it's one of my favorites, uh, that and the Demon Bear Saga, uh, so, like, he, he, he shifted a plot element in my, you know, is my belief that was going to play out in Uncanny X-Men. He just moved it over because it, it made his job a little easier. Um, so there's reasons he shared plot elements, and, and that's kind of why. What that does for me, the reader, like when I look at it, it makes that universe seem more, more cohesive, right? It makes the X-Men and the New Mutants, like, blend together in a way that, like, other books don't necessarily do in the Marvel Universe. If you're going to spin off an X title, like, in my opinion, one of, the, one of the things that you should be thinking about doing is how do these titles relate? If you're going to be a mutant uh, that all associates with Xavier and the X-Men, like, you better have shared plot elements because these characters interact with one another. Oftentimes they're on the same team or in the same building. Uh, so they should be bumping into each other, and they should be sharing story arcs. So I have no problem with that with this it's a little problematic when i'm just trying to read a single title all the way through you know but it's part of what makes the x-men story uh 
X-Men so convoluted and hard to understand, but, you know, so do the retcons, coming back and changing past stories to fit new stories that are coming out. So, you know, I really don't have that big of a problem with the little bit of holes that are left when I didn't realize I was supposed to pick up on Canny X-Men when I was reading New Mutants. Uh, so, that being said, uh, we're going to be diving into issue number two. But before we do that, I'm going to play a promo for Play Comics podcast. Uh, it's an awesome, awesome podcast. I highly recommend you t- check it out. So, here's that promo. And when we come back, we'll dive into issue number have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought maybe i should see what this arkham asylum game is all about or been playing marvel vs. capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage because you didn't know who half the characters were well play comics is the show for you i'm chris and each episode takes a look at video games based on the comic properties and how well they stick to the source material so whether you know the comics and want to know how these games work or know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from go check out play comics at playcomics.com the Brain Trust Network, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Issue number two, entitled Sentinels, picks up where issue number one left off. The narrator explains, in a big room in a big house in the suburban environs of New York City, a young girl runs for her life. That young girl is Daniel Moonstar, and she is fleeing from a monster in what appears to be a prehistoric jungle. Now, we know from last issue that this is a holographic projection created in the danger room, um, and Daniel Moonstar is fleeing this monster that exists in a extremely high-level training program that was once used by the X-Men. Um, it should not be activated, but it is. And as Daniel flees from this beast, it continues to chase her, and she is terrified. And she also realizes that her powers are of no use to her right now. Her abilities allow her to take the deepest, darkest thoughts and primal hopes or fears out of someone's uh, mind and make them tangible and uh, create three-dimensional images. Um, But this, this holographic being is not affected by her powers. And she continues to run until she reaches this rock cliff and she scampers up it and... uh, once out of this monster's reach, she collapses down out of breath. Once um, she gathers herself and regains her composure and catches her breath, she takes a look around uh, the, the danger room from this high perch and is just in awe. She can't believe that she's in the danger room. It's so perfect. It's so realistic. Um, she also begins to realize that something must be terribly wrong because she knows this program was shown to her by Xavier and that it's a high-level program and she shouldn't be in it. And someone has activated the program. She had been shot, zapped after a workout and knocked unconscious and left in the danger room 
after she had exited it. And someone must be out to kill her and do damage to the other, her, her classmates and p- potentially the, the institute itself. And so she decides she's got to get out of here. And she figures that this rock face is probably the wall of the danger room. And so she begins to, uh, s- to slide along the rock cliff uh, along this ledge high up off the jungle floor and uh, continues along and, and she figures she'll reach the exit if she just continues to do this. And all of a sudden, she is confronted by this giant, monstrous, like, insect thing. And if you haven't been reading, if you hadn't been reading, or if you're not reading The Uncanny X-Men, you don't know what this monster is. It just looks like another monster. But if you've been reading Uncanny X-Men, or were reading it at the time, you'll recognize this immediately as a brood. And it tells her, regrettably, youngling, that your salvation will be denied you. I much prefer to see you a host of you host my progeny, but you are too dangerous. You alone have sensed my presence. You alone could bring my, about my destruction. And therefore, you must die. And at this moment, and it's unclear through the art whether it swipes at her or not, but her footing gives way and she falls and plummets to the jungle floor below um and she is lays there motionless and and, uh unconscious elsewhere in salem center mall we find stevie hunter who the narrator also tells us at this point was a prima ballerina before her injury um is there with the remaining students uh rain Shane, Coyman, uh, Samuel Guthrie, and Roberto da Costa. And they're just leaving a movie, uh, E.T. And Rain's sniffing. She's been crying. She says she's super, uh, thought it was super beautiful and was really happy to see this, you know, E.T. be rescued. And Sam says, well, you know, that's the idea. And Roberto's like, what? You thought it was real? A real person? That mutant? That it was a mutant like us? That E.T. creature? No, it was a puppet, Rain. She's like, oh, I mean, I didn't know. I've never seen a movie before, we find out. Because she's super innocent. She's lived a really sheltered life. Um, And... You know, they're all standing in line. They're going to get some ice cream uh, from at the ice cream parlor. And uh, Stevie tells them, hey, I'm going to try to get hold of the Xavier Institute. And she leaves the store, you know, um, but tells them she'll be back. Um, and as they're standing around getting more ice cream and stuff, they're approached by some kids their age. And they ask them, hey, you guys new around here? And they're like, well, we're students at the Xavier School. And then one of them's like, being a jerk, it's like, what, you guys are down here mingling with us common folks? You, you know, like, taking, got a chip on his shoulder because they've got, they're at a private school. And Roberta's ready for a fight. Like, the only thing that stops him from, you know, getting in this guy's face is Sam, who's like, hey, just relax, Bobby. And then one of the, the girl that's with these two guys is like, hey, you know, Frank, stop being a jerk. You know, she introduces herself. Her name's Deanna. And she's short, D is her nickname. That's what most people call her. And she explains, hey, we go to Central High here. We go to Central High in Salem Center. 
and you know they get to get to talking and introductions and they they're going to hang out and just kind of relax and get to know one another elsewhere in a clandestine government facility bustling with activity henry peter gyrich points at a monitor as he explains his plan to Sebastian Shaw. On the monitor, we see the new mutants talking with the high school students they had recently met on the mall. And Gyrich, at this point, he's telling, you know, he's explaining to Shaw what his fear is. And that's that's really of mutants, but he's created these elaborate, much more elaborate than just like, um, this mutant's going to hurt my family that lives next door to me. Right? Like he's not talking about like mutant on human, uh, like magneto type of violence, right? Like this homo superior or this fear of mutants who are your neighbors. Like he's not talking about that. He's talking at a much grander scale. He's talking about world powers or countries around the world using mutants and creating super teams. And he's really concerned that these mutants could if you, if you put the right mutants together, the right combination of powers together, even the smallest nations in the world could rival the United States superpower. And his goal uh, is to prevent that. And he's going to do this in his mind through what is called Project Wide Awake. And this is simply a, a, a secret, uh, off-the-books project uh, that is really going to capture mutants and experiment on them and really to try to figure out what genetic coding is responsible for specific powers. So they'll need holding facilities, lab facilities. I mean, we, we it, it harkens back to um, like concentration camp style, thing, you know, where we have medical doctors poking proddings and, and, and carrying out experiments and this would all be done off the books. Now Shaw, he's listening to all this, and he realize, uh, you know, he he recognizes Roberto da Costa, and he also realizes that Roberto's father is a member of the Hellfire Club. Now he's not part of the inner circle. Emmanuel's not yet part of the inner circle. But what what Shaw is gonna do is use Emmanuel. He's going to pull him into the inner circle and use him as a pawn to really help him gain trust and influence over Roberto. And he's also using Peter Gyrich, which we find out here shortly, uh, that he's going to use Gyrich to, to strike fear into these young kids so that they're so paranoid of humans and what what can potentially happen, that they will be driven into the arms of the Hellfire Club, where he will use them as as pawns in his effort to gain wealth and really power. Okay, that's his goal. Um, and Shaw has provided the government with mutant hunting robots, these giant sentinels. And he asks Gyrich, what, you're going to use these sentinels to round up these kids? And he says, Gyrich insists, no. 
no, I'm not doing that. Like, if we, you know, he's he's well aware that if he unleashes Sentinels to chase down kids, it's going to look really bad. Publicity, it's going to be terrible. And that's not what he wants. So he's going to send in agents to collect these kids and, and, and only send in the robots if it's, you know, necessary. That's his plan B. Shaw just, you know, is reveling in this because he knows that these these kids, these these four members of the New Mutant, they they had just defeated Donald Price. Donald Price had captor, captured uh, Xavier, and his goal, you know, is to wipe out all mutants. So, and and he's not like someone to be taken lightly. And these mutants defeated him, so he knows they're much more capable than than Peter Gyrich seems to. Peter, Peter uh, Henry Gyrich seems to think. So, uh, yeah, what we're going to see is that's going to play out here very shortly. Back at the mall, uh, Stevie Hunter has just finished up her phone call uh, and got no answer from the Xavier Institute. Uh, and she's a little concerned, kind of like, what's going on? Both Danny and Xavier should be there. Nobody's answering. This is a little odd. Uh, And as she's hanging up the phone, a hand covers her mouth and drags her into a closet uh, just uh, in the back uh, halls of the mall. Um, And it's a dark closet. There's no light. And this person's like, hey, you know, I've got something really important to tell you, but, you know, you got to promise me you're not going to scream. I'm here to help. Just really insistent about this. And finally, she he, she agrees to that, and he releases her, and he uh, he turns on the light at the same time, and she spins to see him, and it turns out she recognizes him. She has seen him before and knows who he is through uh, Carol Danver and Charles Xavier. Uh, it's it's Michael Rossi, Colonel Michael Rossi, and she's you know, it figures out, like, you know, I know that you two were lovers. He's like, yeah, um, it's, it's really complicated. She's like, I thought you were dead. <laughs> like, yeah, that's also really complicated. It really served a, a, the purpose. Me being dead was uh, beneficial to what I was trying to do. Um, I've been working undercover. Nobody knows I'm alive. But your students are in big trouble. I don't have time to explain. We have to find them. They are in danger. And so we cut back to the ice cream parlor. Uh, the, the new mutants are sitting around a table with those high school kids from Salem Center. And they're all of a sudden approached by uh, four gentlemen. Three of them are wearing sunglasses. They're all wearing suit, suits and ties. One gentleman doesn't have, looks like he's got a comb over, uh, partly balding, and a mustache, no sunglasses, and everybody realizes they are cops. Um, Roberto wants to fight. Uh, Shane kind of stops him. They kind of follow her lead. She's the oldest, right? She's the oldest. So, you know, she doesn't fight back and encourages Roberto not to take action. And. So they end up going with them. And and she's concerned. Like, she doesn't know if this is the right thing to do. Like, she could be making a huge mistake. But 
She just doesn't think now would be the right time. It would cause a scene and innocents could get hurt. So they follow these uh, agents to the parking garage. So in the parking garage, you know, the agents are to a degree surprised, ambushed, I don't know which, uh, by Colonel Rossi and Stevie Hunter. And Stevie yells for the kids to scatter, and uh, Colonel Rossi has a, a stun gun. He, he tells everyone to freeze. The students break, and he shoots, uh, blasts one of the, the agents, knocking him unconscious. Um, and Sam Guthrie jumps into action. He using his cannonball form, he smashes into a car, knocking out another guard. Um, an, another of the agents uh, tries to flee in a car, and Roberto quickly transforms into Sunspot and smashes his fist through the uh, engine, essentially the car, spraying radiator fluid and everything everywhere, disabling the car. Um, another agent who's about to sh- shoot Roberto uh, in the back is possessed by Shane Coy Man, Karma, um, and the last agent who's beginning to run, uh, run who's the leader of them, uh, Rain uh, transforms into her wolf form and tackles him. Um, and, you know, Colonel Rossi, you know, Sam Guthrie's like, what's going on? Like, you know, these guys are with the government and. He's a little concerned, and Karasi's like, yeah, so am I, and these guys are in big shit, uh, and we don't have time to talk about this now, because I can guarantee you we've got more trouble on the way. we got to get back to the Xavier School, and I'll tell you what's going on. Um, you know, right at that moment, as will always happen in a comic, heightened drama and tension, uh, this giant robot smashes its The sentinel smashes his arm through the ceiling. And, of course, everyone screams, Sentinels! You know, and uh, this, you know, Rossi's like, Run, I'll I'll hold him off. And he shoots shoots one of these giant sentinels in the shoulder. It does absolutely nothing. And uh, it gasses, uh, sprays gas in in Rossi's face, pretty much rendering him unconscious. and and Sam reacts quickly, um, blasting into uh, into this sentinel, smashing him out out of the off the roof and out of the away from the parking garage. Um, there's two other robots. These 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 sentinels hunt in packs, and there's two more on the roof. Um, as as Rossi had warned them. Um, that, that they hunt in packs. Roberto, who doesn't hadn't realized this because Sam's the only one who saw the two on the roof. Roberto's running to Sam's aid. He wants to help his friend. Uh, his 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 exit in, of the garage is cut off by uh, sentinels, the the giant hands of a sentinel um, on either side of him, and it begins to gas him. He he changes into a sunspot form again and smashes through the wall of the parking garage. He's like three, he's at the top pretty much, you know, like three stories up and he plummets to the ground, smashing into a car. He's, he's okay. The car broke his fall and he's pretty resilient apparently in the sunspot form because he gets up and he goes after another sentinel. Uh, he takes it by the leg and, and the sentinel's like, you know, whoop de doo It's just some little puny human. What's it going to do to me? It's, it's no threat. And he lifts it by the foot knocking it off balance um 
he he misjudges how it's going to fall and it smashes into the mall actually this giant sentinel and you know uh luckily no one's hurt um and roberta's really grateful for that uh he he uh then proceeds to rip the head off of of this giant robot um sam sees that the robot the sentinel that he had attacked in the first place has recovered and uh and he rockets towards it again um this time the sentinel is ready for sam's tricks and it uses its uh and it uh uses its fridgy beam apparently the fridgy beam is the best uh name of this amazing technology that allows him to encase Sam in ice. It, it, I don't know. It's a fridgy beam. It shoots it out of its eyes. You know, I don't know. It's it's like it's got Iceman in its head. I don't know. Um, but he does f- succeed in freezing Sam and grabs Sam and, and begins to fly away. And he knows, like, hey, I've captured one of them. If I stay here, it's questionable whether we'll be able to capture the rest and they might all get away. So it begins to make its retreat to headquarters and Rain and Shane both see this and Shane attempts something. She attempts to possess Sam. She wants to take control of him and kick his powers on and, and regain. so he regains control. Well, he's frozen, you know, and you know, she could end up, in the process of possessing him, she could end up freezing herself. Well, she's able to take control of Sam's body and, and does have him begin rocketing. She she kicks him into the cannonball form, and, and he and this robot, uh, the Sentinel, fly up into the sky, up into the higher atmosphere. And the robot, or the Sentinel, is unable to let go. Apparently, Sam did damage it pretty severely when he hit it the first time. So it's unable to let go. It's out of commission. It's flying up in the air with Sam. The downside is is Karma. She is frozen right now. She can't uh she can't move. It's taking everything she has. One because Sam's so far away, but two because he's encased in ice and it's taken a lot out of her to really possess him and get him to ignite his power. So she's unable to move. And Rain sees this. She sees that he's a sitting she's a sitting duck, that Karma's a sitting duck. And you know, Sentinel's blast misses, cutting in the walkway in between the two girls in half. Colonel Rossi says, don't worry about it. Uh, Stevie and I will handle this. Uh, you just need to go and capture that that head agent. If we can get him, we can have this attack called off. But we have to cap- capture him and then have your friend possess him. And then, then we'll end this fight without anyone else getting, without anyone getting hurt, hopefully. Uh, and at that time, Roberto shows up. Rossi again shoots uh, the sentinel in the head like it's doing nothing, but he keeps shooting at these sentinels. It turns. It does distract. It did succeed in su- distracting the sentinel. Uh, and uh, it looks to them instead of going after uh, Karma. Um about that time, you know, at the same moment as that's happening, the Sentinels focusing in on Stevie Hunter, Roberto, and Colonel Rossi, uh, Shane lets go of her possession of Sam. And Sam all of a sudden stops rocketing. He's like, uh, something's going on. I don't know where I'm at. Uh, there's a Sentinels holding on to me. I was frozen just a minute ago. What's, what's going on? Uh, 
he realizes, holy shit, I'm high up in the air. I uh, better get back down there. I need to destroy this robot if I can and uh, get back to helping my friends. So he begins rocketing towards Earth, you know, at super speed. I mean, he's he's plummeting down super fast. And it just happens that his trajectory takes him right into that last sentinel, destroying the last two sentinels. Uh, and and the, the sentinels are completely ruined. Um, now, obviously, you can probably guess it, uh, Wolf Spain is successful in capturing... Um, the the head agent and the police arrive. Um, so this is this last, this second to last page, uh, is one of my favorite panels in this issue, uh, because what we have is Shane that the the new mutants Colonel Rossi and Stevie Hunter are driving away. They're gonna go back to Westchester and they're gonna uh the the Xavier Institute, the Xavier Mansion. Um, and in the car in the back seat is uh, Shane Coyman, Karma, and, and she is possessing that head agent. And she just continues to have him confess to everything that had happened. Just keeps telling them everything, right? Um, which is horrible if you're running a secret agency, right? You have Henry Peter Geirich, who's now, not only did he have these robots completely fail at what they're supposed to do they've destroyed them all they've made a huge scene the media the police uh fire trucks ambulances are all there everyone in the mall knows right it is a catastrophe and now you have one of the agents who's been arrested he just will not stop confessing everything so you know this is not good if you are henry peter guyrich uh who was not supposed to have made this big public scene now it's all over the place and so um finally colonel rossi turns to karma and says hey you know that's good you you can let him go and when she does this guy of course he's confused as always you know her her subjects she possesses they have no idea like they're not they have no idea what has happened. They, they just black out. There's a point, there's a chunk of time that's missing for them. And so he is shocked to find himself in handcuffs. And he's like, uh, what's going on? Why am I handcuffed? And they tell him, you know, they're like, well, you're under arrest, dude. You told us everything. And he's like, well, I didn't do it. I don't, you know, he's super confused. Now, these last two panels are wonderful because, you know, if you remember, you know, Karma, her story arc, she and her brother twin brother her twin brother was like that type of person who took control of people he just possessed them and would do things force them to do things he wanted them to do right and he really enjoyed it he took pleasure in humiliating and hurting and damaging and murdering people and you know using his powers gleefully in that manner and you know karma never really liked her powers she she always you know saw them as something that was really not something to be proud of and not something to like utilize because it she didn't like taking somebody's free will she didn't like possessing someone and she's really beginning to wonder like should she be doing this you know is she any better than her her twin brother and you know we don't get resolution here but we do see this beginning this the beginning of the struggle in, in her that I'm trying to sort out 
what this means for her. Like, was what she did to this agent, was that really something she should have done? Like, yes, it helped her friends, but, like, was that any better than what her brother was doing? And I like their, her characters kind of questioning that. You know, she's, you know, been in four issues of comics to this point, right? The team up and uh, two, two regular-sized issues of New Mutants and now and, and the graphic novels. So, like, it's not like she's been doing this for a real long time. So, of course, she's going to have some trepidation. And she's a 19-year-old girl, right? Um, so, anyways, back to the story. They do return to the Institute, and they find Danny laying on the floor in the danger room. And, you know, she's unconscious. They go to her, and she, she's startled awake by them, and, and she's terrified, right? She's like, get away from me, get away from me. They're like, oh, it's okay, Danny, what's going on? You know, and, and you know, they comfort her, and she j- dives into uh, Stevie Hunter's arms, and she explains, hey, you know, um, something happened, this is what happened. Uh, and Stevie's kind of concerned, right? She she knows the X-Men are gone. Xavier was the only one here. So somebody's out to get Danny, and it could be, you know, who knows? Xavier, there's only a handful of people that know the controls in the danger room. Xavier's one of them, and, and she, turned Xavier and a few other, and Moira, and she was gone. Moira was in, in London, and, you know, Xavier was the only one there. And the very last panel is great. Xavier's unconscious, and we see this astral projection projection above him, and it's of this monster. That same monster knocked Danny from the cliff in the danger room, right? That we know is a brood queen, and that's where it ends, right? With this image of the brood queen, queen hovering above Xavier's body, who is either asleep or passed out at his desk. Up in up above the danger room, up in his office, and that's where we leave off. The next episode will be called Nightmares, episode three. We're gonna pick up where this story left off. It'll be great. James explores New Mutants is recorded in Iowa City, Iowa, and produced by myself using the Anchor app. New episodes are available every Wednesday through Anchor, Google, and Stitcher, to name a few. You can reach the podcast on Twitter at Explore New Mutant or via email at Explore the New Mutants at gmail.com. The Anchor app I've been using to record this podcast, as I mentioned last week, has this amazing voice message feature which allows you, the listener, to record questions or comments that then are sent d- directed to my uh, uh, Anchor page. And I can take those questions and put them directly into my podcast, which then I would answer during the podcast. I think it would be a great way to engage with you, the listeners, and a really good way for you to take part in this podcast. So I highly encourage that. Um, Otherwise, you can reach me through Twitter, like I said, and email and direct comments, questions, concerns there, and I'll do my best to answer those on the podcast. Um, next week will be episode four, and we'll be diving into issue number three, Nightmares. So I'm looking, re- really looking forward to that and can hardly wait. So until then, enjoy reading those comics.